This is an ABC podcast. It's like being at the hour of freedom. You feel this huge urge to respond to it and everything that you've held in your body over the years of living under this oppressive system, we are all experiencing it in the same way. Women, life, freedom. It's the rallying cry of Iran's women-led uprising. And we're going to hear from artist Hoda Afshar about the kinds of art coming out of the movement and Hoda's own experience under the regime. This is The Art Show. I'm Rosa Allen, filling in for Daniel Browning and coming to you this International Women's Day from Wurundjeri Country. We'll also meet a painter who found her voice after seeing her culture through someone else's eyes. Now I've been so warmly welcomed and warmly supported by this community. Like That still makes me feel that pang of guilt for having rejected it for so long, but also it, it makes me feel this sense of responsibility. And what 19th century French artist, one of the most celebrated of her day, loved big cats, women, and went to extraordinary lengths to wear pants. Um, and to do that, you had to actually really have good medical grounds to justify wearing trousers. I mean, it sounds bizarre now. It's all coming up here on The Art Show. Last September, you'll be aware protests erupted across Iran when a 22-year-old woman called Masa Amini died in police custody. She'd been arrested by the state's morality police for wearing her hijab too loosely. Since then, hundreds have been killed in protests. That's according to human rights groups. And the government crackdown includes many arrests and even execution. Hoda Afshar is a Melbourne-based documentary photographer. She's been on The Art Show before. Hoda often stages and intervenes on real-life scenes or scenarios in order to get closer to reality. Her subjects are more like participants, and she's always engaging with politics and social issues, both here and overseas, from her portraits of Behrouz Bouchani on Manus Island to a series on people who live in the Persian Gulf who believe the wind can possess them. And that location isn't far from Sharjah in the UAE, where Hoda has recently returned from the Sharjah Biennial, a huge contemporary art festival. But I'm pleased to welcome her back to the art show. Welcome. Hi, Hoda. Thank you for having me again. Before Sharjah, the biennial I just mentioned, you were commissioned by the museum's courtier in Vienna, a kind of art district, uh, to make a work called Women, Life, Freedom. You were you were busy doing a lot of other projects at the time, but what kind of artwork did you decide to make with that title? It was basically at the beginning of the uprisings in Iran that the curator from the museum who worked with me before on other projects, she contacted me and she said they have these billboards outside the museum that they commission an artist every month to make um, a new work for it. And she said to me that I know about what's happening in Iran and I was wondering if you want to use this platform to share the voice of uh, your people here. So it was in the middle of multiple projects I was working on with deadlines and I was uh, under a lot of pressure but I didn't want to miss that opportunity and um, so I was like give me a few days to think about it and I was thinking what can I do in that moment that could contribute to the you know the the revolution or the voice of the people and for the first time I thought there's nothing I can make pictures of that can be stronger than what the people over there are creating and 
the idea that the um, the images were coming out of Iran. A number of friends from Iran sent me photographs that were taken by anonymous photographers, and they were asking their friends to send it to people with platforms to share it with with the broader audience without their names mentioned because it's quite dangerous, as you can imagine. So in that moment, I thought of, you know, as a lot of my works are quite collaborative and I, I tend to collaborate with people and creative people and um, individuals. And I thought I can treat this as a imaginary collaboration, you know. I collected those images that were mostly sent to me by other photo friends and other friends in Iran and also what was being overtly shared on social media and which they're all quite similar thematically and I use the low quality of the image that because the more the image is shared on the internet, the lower the resolution becomes. So I wanted to communicate that aesthetic as well. So I scanned those images and blew them up on billboards and um, curated them together in a way that it represents the woman life freedom movement. That was the piece in Austria. I'm interested in the anonymous photographers of the protests. Your own photography deals with staging things and the idea of being subjective. But if you've got no one behind the eye of the camera, where does that put us, the viewer, like um, like the international audience? Yeah, I think, you know, it's one of those things that I personally struggle a lot with as, as, as an artist that makes art that is engaging with political, social issues of the time. And you often wonder what is the functioning of this work? Like, does it only belong to the you know, of, of the white cubes where only the elite and the privileged part of the society visits? Or why would you do that? Why would you take the struggle of the people into into these spaces only? And in the recent years, I've been trying to take my work outside of the gallery spaces and museum spaces and use also public spaces as a, as a place for sharing uh, the stories and the works. And engage the general public with those issues and the works. And now seeing, you know, like people using art, the language of art on the streets of Iran because they understand the value of the aesthetic, the performance of it, staging their their stories for our gaze over here because from the beginning of the uprising, all the Iranian people been asking the world to do is to share their voice around to counter what the system is trying to do and has been trying to do for the past 45 years. They've basically taken an entire nation, 80 million people hostage, this government. And and now at this moment, for the first time, the fear is broken. People are speaking out and they're risking their lives by doing so. As you can see, young people on the streets been murdered in front of the world's eyes by this government. But now they know that this is the only way and otherwise they have to remain silent. They have to continue living under the oppression. So it's death or freedom. And that's what they're risking, basically. And that's what they're demanding the world to do, to share these works. So it goes beyond the author. So it's art at the hands of the people, at the service of a revolution, which is quite incredible. And I think in all, historically in all revolution, art has played a huge role, hasn't it? Yeah, I, and it's always powerful, I guess, when those acts of physical resistance are captured by a camera and become you know, often defining works of art. Now, now, you were born in the wake of the 1979 Islamic Revolution and you grew up under the system. What did it mean to you that a woman's death is what triggered this? 
And and women putting their bodies on the line started this revolution, as you call it, this uprising. Um, I was born right after the Islamic Revolution, a few years after, which was 1983. Um, the revolution happened in 1979. And when I was born, it was right in the midst of the war between Iran and Iraq and a war that lasted for eight years. And by that, by the end of it, the Islamic uh, government has established itself as the government of Iran. And the country was so exhausted that they couldn't really fight that either. And um, they were in a state of shock, basically. Um, and when I grew up, we knew, I, I knew and I realized from early on that um, there's only two options. You either find a way to get out of the country um, or you stay and live under the oppression of that system. There was no other solution, but that means that doesn't mean that we we stopped fighting. Everyday women have been finding ways to gradually change the systems and get their rights, and um, it's exhausting. It's really exhausting, but that means that our struggle have grown more and more complex, and the women which is quite interesting uh, in the like one of the most disturbing things that I experienced after migration from Iran to a Western country was how my, the women of my country were perceived from afar. Women without agency or autonomy. When I, what I see from my personal experience is that, you know, um, fighting within those systems against the most ruthless system and the state power requires a lot more autonomy than fighting for women's right in a free world. So it does require women with much stronger, I don't want to compare at all, but like I'm just trying to portray what my experience of, you know, being a woman in Iran was as opposed to the image that people have of us here. But my personal experience was definitely mixed with so much trauma and pain. Like as a young person, I was always in fear of getting arrested and I, I was arrested many times. Really? Did you have interactions with the morality police? Absolutely, yeah. There, there's been um, a number of times that I was uh, stopped by the... There was a number of times that I was stopped by the morality police on the streets. The first time was when I was 16. And What, what over? Not wearing proper hijab or just um, the, the um, we have to wear another extra layer on top of all our clothes. If we are not, you have the option to either wear a veil or um, something loose on top of everything. But then this loose top was like gradually getting tighter and tighter <laughs> and shorter and shorter. And the risk was to get arrested and we were taking up the risk and we were getting arrested for it. But then leaving the um, detention and then coming out and doing the same <laughs> thing again. And um, the sleeves were getting shorter to a point that now women wear only, you know, shirts and pants or skirts. Hardly anyone wears that loose baggy clothes clothing a piece of clothing on top but that's what I mean by like the gradual uh, move towards you know getting what what they want uh, which hasn't been easy it, it came with over uh, the price but yeah I was arrested multiple times at parties when I became a teenager 
Um, everything happens inside the houses. So the idea was to get to the friend's place. And first thing we all needed to do was to find the escape doors, how to get out of here if the police comes and which the risk was 50% always. Mm. And they are often they were crashing into the party. And I read about these underground raves that kind of turn into protest parties. Yeah. Is that... Was that sort of thing happening when you were growing up? No, our rebellious act was to just like be young and hang out and party and men and women gather together, together. and then have a drink and dance. And, you know, one of the first projects I did uh, when I started photography, which made me really excited about photography, was that actually I want to document these untold stories that we do have a life on the ground that is not documented and is not shared. So... I started documenting my friends' gatherings and parties and all my friends were performing for my camera. You know, that's where the whole performance of the documentary started for me. Um, but, yeah, I was arrested multiple times. I was put for, in... For being a teenage girl. For being a teenage girl. Once I was put in, um, in a uh, solitary confinement for 48 hours... Um, after being arrested at a party, we were getting lashed for, you know, um, it's horrific. I, I, I didn't, I never talked about these experiences before this uprising because speaking about these things often ends up placing you in those very stereotypical concepts that you're trying to fight against when you move to, to a Western country. But also, does it put your family at risk? I don't think so. Yeah, I, th I think if they want to arrest every single person who's protesting against them outside Iran, if they want to arrest their families, they have to arrest almost half of the nation because so many people left and they're... There's a yeah. critical mass now. Yeah. Going back to that feeling when you came to Australia and suddenly felt your Iranianness and this, you kind of hit upon this stereotype of what an, of an oppressed Iranian woman you in response that made this photographic series called Under Western Eyes that was a Warhol-esque series of, of photos of a woman in a, a full body length hijab. What were you responding to there exactly? That that work, I, um, I think of it as a manifesto that I need to put out there. After I moved to Australia, there were a lot of encouragement from my peers and uh, other artists and educators that I should make work similar to the work of Shirin Nishad or other artists who make work about the oppression of women and my experience as an Iranian woman, which was always already assumed as, as oppressed. And there's this kind of also agenda in this which is like portraying the west as the platform that has liberated me or gave me a voice that i didn't have and so on so there the there's a trend in the art world that now guarantees the success of an artist if you make work about your oppression and decorate it with the exotic elements of your cultural background and iconographies of it what's familiar to to the western audience so um i started collecting all the successful artworks that i could see in the art scene uh, that was about the islamic female experience and identity and i mixed them all together and I exaggerated the look of it and I put the Andy Warhol aesthetic on top of it to speak about the mass production and consumption of the same imagery and the inspiration behind it for me came from the work that Richard Bell made 
with the use of all the, you know, modern Western styles of, you know, abstract art and paintings. And he named it Aboriginal art. It's a white thing. So I wanted in some ways to say that veil art, it's a white thing too. Do you see the regime's ideology at all connected to misogyny or other ideology that attack women's rights? Like even in the free world even, I'm thinking, you know, that extends from the US to Poland. Do you see it as part of, of something larger? Absolutely. I think what one thing that is really important for all of us to know and to see, and that's why this movement in Iran is really important. It's a turning point for not just Iran, not just the entire region, but for the world to reformat the way that we think about womanhood, we think about human rights, we think about our feminist struggle, because what we need to realize is that our number one enemy is the state power, the patriarchal state powers. And these patriarchal state powers have created bridges between us women that says to one group that your struggle is different from the other. You are more advanced than the other. You are this, they, this. And there's no structure out in the world as normalized as patriarchy mm -hmm. in every corner of the world, whether yeah. it's in the free world to the countries under oppression like my home country and so on. So everything we are negotiating in this space is based on those patriarchal systems. So it's really important, like when, when I think about it, like uh, when was the last time that in recent years we spoke about universal freedom? We have forgotten such notions that became uh, the core idea of the world of philosophy and knowledge and so on. We stopped thinking about the world as one. We stopped thinking about women as, you know, uh, women's struggle as one. And we selectively choose what to care for because that's what decided for us, you know. Getting back to the artistic responses to the movement, we've talked about anonymous photographers. What kind of protest art has emerged from the beginning of the uprisings, what's been quite fascinating to me is the outpouring of, you know, art in different forms and shapes. It's like the country's been waiting for this moment and every morning we're waking up to all sorts of responses from the graphic design, like the posters, to the music the creative ways of going about making music as well that is so poetic like and it it's also comes from like people collaborating together anonymously again or autonomously and to to paintings to all sorts of responses the photography that I, I brought up early on i think it's like being at the hour of freedom in some ways and you feel this huge urge to respond to it and everything that you've held in your body over the years of living under this oppressive system, like what we are all experiencing from within and outside, uh, outside of Iran and inside, like Behruz Bouchani said the, the other day something to me that it's a revolution that has already started in our hearts and we are all experiencing it in the same way. What really inspired everyone was the this, what's it called, Generation Z? Uh, the, the young kids, 16, 17-year-olds, stand in the face of these scary men. And, like, I remember physically how I used to feel when I, uh, every time I saw them on the streets, it was paralyzing. Mm. It was, I used to go frozen and go like, all right, take me and do whatever you need to, but just... 
I'm not going to resist. So um, I still remember it vividly in my body. But now I look at these videos that are coming out of Iran, the young girls who are standing in their faces and screaming back at them. So watching that was the most, I don't know, mind-blowing thing I, I, I saw and like right in that moment, I, I had nothing to fear anymore. Like, and I think I wasn't the only person. It was all the Iranians inside and outside that felt the same. Mm. The fear is broken and we are one step closer. So, you know, like the revolution can only happen when this belief in freedom becomes part of the culture and becomes dominant in, in the culture. And that's where we are at. It's the matter of time, how much time it's going to take. But um, no one knows. Revolutions often take time. But we all know that this is, this is going to happen. Hada Afshar, thanks so much for, for joining me on the Art Show. And happy International Women's Day. <laughs> <laughs> happy International Women's Day. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Hoda Afshar. You can hear her earlier interview with Daniel Browning about her project Speak the Wind on the Art Show program page. And Hoda's work can also be seen in the upcoming Tarawara Biennial in Victoria. You can find links to everything on our program page. This is The Art Show and I'm Rosa Allen. In France, there were once epitaphs and statues even dolls made of a woman who in her day was one of the most famous artists in Europe. She didn't paint people or flower arrangements or battles, but she definitely wasn't of the avant-garde. She painted animals and she in no way embodied a 19th century feminine ideal. Rosa Bonheur is the artist I'm talking about. She wore trousers, wore her hair short and lived with a woman in a relationship she described more or less as a marriage. UK art history writer Catherine Hewitt has written a book exploring her life and I started by asking her about Rose's unconventional clothing. Actually, it was illegal for women to wear trousers at this time without having um, obtained a permit, first of all, from the prefecture to police. Um, and to do that, you had to actually really have good medical grounds to justify wearing trousers. I mean, it sounds bizarre Wait, now. Wait, what, what were the medical grounds? This is it. I mean, they talked about, they allowed you to ha wear trousers if you had, for example, um, a health condition or a physical abnormality that meant it absolutely impossible, that meant made it sort of impossible for you to go about your daily business in a skirt. Rosa and her partner, Natalie, they managed to get permission because they were, they'd been prescribed a visit to a spa town from a doctor. Now, again, sounds wonderful these days, but back in the day, this was very much something that was, was done if people were ill. You know, a visit to a spa town was meant to be uh, something that would help restore the body. They were allowed to wear trousers and it very quickly became afterwards an unofficial uniform for Rosa. Wow, what a lot of hoopla just to wear pants. Very um, much. Now, Rosa was born into a painting family, but she really was the star artist. What was her childhood like? Her childhood was really fascinating, actually, and it was one of the things that really sort of attracted me when I started learning about Rosa's story and uncovering it. Um, her family played a massive massive part in her in her career and her professional development and obviously in her, her personal and social development too. Um, so her father was actually an artist and a teacher uh, and uh, he subscribed to Sansimonian beliefs. Now that was really best described as a cult-like socialist movement, if you like, that um, they held very progressive ideas about women and education and um, they were very much pro sort of common ownership of goods and 
putting an end to the right of inheritance was one of the other things, and making opportunities more available to women. And Rosa was uh, one of four children, in fact, um, had by her parents, and all of the children went on to become artists. One of those paintings... I mean, her most famous is called The Horse Fair. I think it's it's now owned by the Met in New York. It's just powerfully energetic. And, I'm, you know, I'm wondering how did she develop that highly technical skill for painting horses? One of the, the, the points that a lot of people remember about Rosa when they start to sort of discover her story is the fact that she went to abattoirs and studied animals really close, close up. Um, oh, anatomy. Yes, very, very close sort of studies of anatomy um, and dissections as well. She wasn't afraid to do her own dissections. And she looked, you know, at the, the, the bones and the musk muscles and and really considered them very, very closely before she began to draw. And I think that really, really helped her work. She also, with the horse fair particularly, she went to um, the Paris horse market and took uh, no end of studies and sketches there. I mean, when one actually goes to Rosa's chateau and sees the sort of the amount of preparatory drawings she did for any one piece, um, everything a finished piece by Rosa might look as though she sat down and studied carefully, but it's all sort of happened quite effortlessly. And in fact, it's, it's completely untrue. Every single work has, has taken study after study after study to get right. And she has looked so closely and in different media at the creatures she's uh, she's exploring. You d- this is how you describe her, her studio in, in the book, Art is a Tyrant. Something between a stable and a picture gallery, a, t- a set of small pens housed sheep and goats, opposite them a feeding area for a more larger stock, and every now and then a rabbit darted out of nowhere. Like, she obviously had a, a special bond with animals, and I think there's a lot of empathy in her single animal portraits, like like the lions. There is. And she was very keen to to impress on people that she felt the eyes of an animal were so important. She felt that you could read so much about them by, by really studying their eyes closely and looking into them. And she discovered and got into painting the lions and the big cats really in the 1870s. It's interesting, actually, because it was sort of after the Franco-Prussian War. And whether or not that was um, a reaction to the conflict that had been going on in France and the the sort of interest suddenly in these sort of powerful creatures and strong creatures, um, whether or not that was linked, I, I suspect it probably was. Some of the emotions that she had been working through as as the country was sort of taken over by by conflict and that became part of everyday life. Did she own a lion? <laughs> she did. Yes, yes. She had all sorts of big cats that she owned. She had um she borrowed a tiger at one point too. The lion used to roam free and and. Rosa adored her lion and in fact she sort of nursed it while it was ill and eventually died and you know she was very 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 fond of these big cats and, and people didn't really understand but uh, but again another thing that became quite a sort of a, a selling feature because it was so unusual her, her reaction to these sort of big animals and people were terrified in the local area um, her neighbours sort of be, you know worried about sort of what, what might escape. And people at the time just loved her work I mean I meant that there were you know, she had fans in Europe and America and Britain, and there were, I think there were dolls even made of her. What, there were. Can you give me a sense of, of her 
of her popularity? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult for us to, to really comprehend the level of celebrity she enjoyed at this distance. But she, it was it was really ploughing in the Nivernay. That's what first, um, that was her painting in 1849 that really first started attracting her attention. Um, and then after that, the Horse Fair in 1853. And it it secured her, her reputation. I mean, it goes back to the importance of this sh- big show, the Paris Salon. It was where reputations were made. I mean, it's as important as probably Cannes Film Festival nowadays. And she travelled to England and Scotland and met all sorts of famous people, critic John Ruskin. Um, she was sort of contacted by the Prince, England's Prince of Wales at the time, the future Edward VII. And uh, the great Buffalo Bill from America actually paid her a visit too. And she enjoyed painting him and all his riders. And, and you're absolutely right. And there was a doll made of her too. And again, I think it comes back to the fact that she was really rather quirky. I mean, her paintings were exceptionally good. And that that made her very commercial. She Her paintings, they looked attractive. People wanted to put them on the wall but the fact that she she was this sort of rather unusual character um a woman but but painting in a very kind of powerful masculine style and wearing trousers it, it made her rather intriguing and so these two aspects together made her incredibly popular very very quickly yeah it, it sounds like her quirkiness was also due to her, her gender nonconformity. And part of that was the major relationship, decades-long relationship of her life, yes. was with a woman called Natalie Mika. It sounds like a marriage, right? Is that is that confirmed? Yeah, in your opinion, it's really it's really fascinating. And actually, there's been a lot of debate about this recently. Natalie was actually her she was her dearest childhood friend, if you like. Really, they met when Rosa was around about fourteen, um, and Natalie was she was unwell, and so her parents had brought her to have her portrait painted by Rosa's father. And inevitably, as the sittings took place, Rosa and Natalie became close and got to know each other. And Natalie started doing household chores for Rosa in to help her out because Rosa was not domestic at all Uh, and Rosa gave her some drawing lessons and they very quickly became sort of an emotional support for each other and Natalie was rather like a technician I think if you like for for Rosa they became very close it was a really intense companionship and uh, eventually they ended up living together Rosa actually lived with um, Natalie and Natalie's mother who did all their cooking for them but Rosa is recorded as having said if I had been a man I would have married her so they they definitely enjoyed the, the closeness of a husband and a wife. I mean, I think one of the problems is that, that there isn't anything confirmed to say, you know, was there actually a sexual element to this relationship? Um, and obviously, that's, a, that's what everybody wants to know. You know, how far did this go? Was it just an intense companionship? Or, or was there a little bit more to it? And probably the truth is, is that we're never actually going to know for certain. Um, I think there was a great sense at the time, because it was sort of after the June days of 1848, there was a great feeling in France that that you know, the regime wanted to preserve order at all costs. And that meant being able to categorise things very quickly and easily. Really much, um, there wasn't much margin for these grey areas, these middle grounds. Uh, so, you know, you they, it, it was, people wanted things to be black or white, basically, to make it sort of easy to understand sort of where, where people sort of sat with things and, and, and who they were and what they were. You know, it may it may not have necessarily involved a, a sexual element. This relationship that Rosa had, in fact, the two main relationships, we will probably never know. But certainly, Natalie was very important to Rosa, as was her following uh, partner Anna. I mean, I guess there's plenty of historical heterosexual marriages that we have no proof of being sexual. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
She was alive, as you say, in the last part of the 19th century. I'm wondering, do we know, do we know where she stood on things like the rights of women and suffrage? She, she famously said once, um, women's rights, women's nonsense. Um, now, her feeling, her feeling was that, you know, women shouldn't need to fight for uh, their right to do things. She felt that she felt very strongly, in fact, that women should should earn respect by producing very, very high quality work. And by by doing that, she felt that they shouldn't need to fight. They should earn their respect rather than demand it. And that was something she felt very passionately about. But certainly, you know, she was working at a time where where rights for women was becoming much more of an issue. The whole question of female suffrage and the suffragettes. So um, so it's interesting. But Rosa Rosa very much she she lived rather like a hermit to be honest she was very reclusive uh she uh, she didn't really embrace uh she she was interested in th- th- this whole idea of fame but she she liked to keep her own herself to herself if you like i mean she even had um when she bought a villa uh in nice she uh, had a a fake doorbell attached to it so that people would ring the button and no bell would ring <laughs> When did she start to be recognised as a feminist icon? I mean, obviously, she would never describe herself that way. But when did other people see her that way? There were, obviously, there were sort of people that, that did take note of her and, and listen to her story and were inspired by her in her day. I mean, her partner, in fact, her second partner, Anna Klump, is the perfect example of that, in that she had sort of discovered Rosa from a distance in the States and had she wanted to uh, become an artist and wasn't particularly you know, set on becoming a just a happy housewife. And I think Rosa offered inspiration there. And uh, but but definitely, you know, Rosa has become more and more of a feminist icon as time has gone on. Uh, sadly, I mean, her work really, it had its popularity in the 19th century, but it, it lost its followers to a certain degree after that. And I think something, some of that is due to the fact that she didn't really, she can't easily be classed in a movement. She didn't sort of associate herself with, say, Impressionism or something thing that you know would would make it very easy to sort of remember her she was very popular at the time but then you know photography started to do uh, and fill a, a little bit of the hole that, that she was filling for people who just wanted a very perfect picture of an animal on their wall photography to some degree started to do that i think there has been an increasing amount of interest in rosa for the last 10 years actually there's been a, a sort of a mounting interest in her and she was born in 1822 so last year obviously was a very sort of of big um, anniversary. I think we find, you know, society can still be quite hostile towards men and women who don't necessarily conform or can't be easily categorised and, and defined. And I think that's uh, that's something that can be taken from her story, certainly. Catherine Hewitt. Her book is called Art is a Tyrant, The Unconventional Life of Rosa Bonheur. Marikit Santiago is an artist whose work has won the Sulman Prize for genre painting, and she's been shortlisted for the Archibald Portrait Prize, which is significant when you hear about how she came to really find her voice as a painter. Marikit paints rich, figurative scenes that delve into what it means to have dual cultural identities, as well as themes like motherhood, religious beliefs, and what she calls the Filipino aesthetic. And if you're wondering what that is, stay tuned. Market, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure. I want to ask you about ambition because we don't actually talk about it that much with artists. So I'm wondering, where did your artistic ambition start? Did you always want to be an artist? 
No, actually. Um, when you say the word ambition, what comes to mind is my childhood ambition, which was to become a doctor. And I worked towards that for my entire childhood. Like whenever anyone asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was always doctor. And I, very, I had a very clear path that I wanted to take. And in high school, I chose all of the electives that would get me into medicine. And I did the entrance exam. And, and in the end, I ended up getting uh, accepted into medical science at UNSW. And about two weeks into the course, all of my life plans at that point as an 18-year-old had unraveled. And I realized that perhaps I didn't actually have what it takes to follow that ambition. And it was like a really difficult time. Like I think that age is a difficult time anyway. But yeah, I just felt like I'd worked towards this one goal and then reached that point and realized that it wasn't for me or that... What, what was behind the goal? Being a doctor was like a very tangible way of feeling like you could help people. And I also was a high achiever academically at school. So that felt like that gave me a bit of confidence that medicine could be a goal that I could reach. And I was raised by very caring and compassionate parents. And they encouraged me with that ambition to to want to help people. And, you know, I witnessed my parents help people throughout my childhood and, and continue to help people throughout my childhood in, you know, lots of different ways. So that was something that I wanted to do with my life. I felt like that would give me purpose and what did you did you push through I mean you were only a few weeks in right <laughs> <laughs> yeah I pushed through um as I said I was my parents really pushed me to achieve that that goal and I think they were just as invested in my ambition as I was after two weeks you know realized that maybe it wasn't for me they were like no no when you start something you finish it and that's not something that like they that they only said to me that one time. It was always something that they've instilled in me. It's that you push through and you finish it, finish the job. Um, and, yeah, so I finished it. And my parents always said just, you know, keep doing it, keep working through, just get that degree so you have something to fall back on. And after this you can do whatever you want. And so that kind of after this you can do whatever you want really, like, got me to that finish line, even though that idea of whatever I want wasn't clear yet. With art. Most artists have a sense that, like, they're good at it, you know. They're following through on something that they enjoy and they've practised. Did you know that you were good at art? Um, yeah, I knew that I had, I had a talent and I think, like, I credit that talent to genetics, honestly. Like, I think uh, it's kind of a God-given talent or a talent that has been passed down to me from my dad's side of the family, there are a lot of creative people. And even on my mum's side, I think she would never admit that she's creative, but I think that's because she thinks creativity is a visual language or it comes through in arts, but she's creative in other ways. But, yeah, I think my very the very first memory I have of someone indicating to me that I was good at art was in kindergarten and uh, we were asked to trace our hand and then draw like draw the details of our hand. And I was the only one in the class that, you know, kind of really went into the details and I put in the wrinkles at my knuckles and, um, you know, my, <laughs> the, the shape of my fingernails. And the teacher held up my, my work and showed everyone. And I was terrified. I thought I was in trouble. And that's kind of the first time that I knew that maybe I was actually good at art. But when I went to art school and I didn't have that confidence, I wanted to see if I would, I would make it. I think that came from that, you know, feeling really dejected after doing that medical science degree where I was, I was just hustling, I was working hard 
and I just wasn't excelling the way that I had been in the past. Um, and so with art, I just didn't, I, I was, I, I had no idea. Like, you know, I thought of, I kind of went to art school thinking, I'm just going to try it and see how I fare against other people. Um, and not that artists should compare themselves to other artists, but I just wanted to see if I was good enough to be in an institution like Kofa to learn there. And that, that's the only reason I, I went to art school. That was the thing that got me there in the first place. Yeah. I mean, did you, how many, how many students did you meet there who were like you, who had that background of maybe ambitious immigrant parents who really wanted you to do well and, you know? Honestly, I don't think very many. Um, because I because I had gone to I'd gone to Kofa as an undergrad as technically a mature age student because I was I was twenty one because <laughs> I'd already done a degree before so a lot of my classmates were like fresh graduates from high school and I felt like they were they were sort of there because they didn't know what else they wanted to do with art and I felt that I was different to them in the sense that I was there because I needed. I needed to, you know, make it work. Whereas, you know, I think with my classmates, they were just like they weren't sure. What sort of what sort of skills were you learning? Um, early on, I real I learned how to really hone my technical skills, um, and that was, you know, that's that God given talent that I that I'm talking that I, I, I mentioned is that I think I'm naturally good at drawing and painting. But when I went to uni, it gave me those extra skills to really sharpen the existing technical skills that I had. So I went in to art school wanting to learn how to draw and paint better. And by that, I mean to create a really close likeness to the subject. So I wanted my work to look realistic. And I learned a lot in that sense. And, I, and the skills that I learned in those early years of art school to hone those technical skills, I still employ now with my work. Um, and when I teach, you know, when, when the, the roles are reversed and I'm the teacher, I'm, I find that I'm teaching those same skills that were taught to me in those early years. But towards the end of my degree, and I, and I felt quite confident that I was, you know, reproducing an image to a very close likeness, it got to a point where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I can, with my hands, create an image that looks just like a photo. But then it just, you know, felt redundant. And now that everyone has access to a camera and can take an image wherever they go, it just sort of felt like, well, what's the point? of being able to do that if there's nothing more I can say about my work than I've, I've done this with my hands. So then I started to think about what my work means and I felt that that was going to be the key for me to be able to make a, a successful and a viable career in art because I knew I didn't want to just be like a portrait painter, you know. I, I, did, I, I already found in, the, in the, those years, early years of, of art school that, just reproducing a photo was, wasn't fulfilling enough. So I really had to find what it was that I wanted my art to mean. But it seems like that question actually hadn't been asked of you before. Not until like the very, like the last few years of, of art school. So that I felt, I think the first two and a half years were very much about technical skill. And then it's pretty, like that's pretty late in, in your degree. Like if you're not going to continue to do further education, like the last term of, a three-year degree, like that's really when they started to ask us to consider what does your work mean? What are you trying to say? And at first I wasn't really sure what I wanted it to say. Like I feel like art is supposed to be political and I didn't feel like I'm not confident in talking about politics. And, and now that I say that and knowing where my work has gone from there, I know that my work is inherently political. But I think 
when I say political or when, <laughs> yeah. what I thought political back then meant is like governing politics. You know, I just didn't consider all the other aspects of, of politics. Yeah. And I actually had a, a lecturer say to me that because we were asked to write a proposal of what, you know, what our body of work, our final year body of work was going to be about. And I wrote about something personal. And she said to me, you can't sustain your art practice on autobiographical themes. And I panicked. I was like, I, I'm not confident in talking about anything else but autobiographical themes or personal experience. I don't feel like I can speak about anything else with authenticity as I can about what I've experienced myself. So I had a mo- and and I, I you know this was a well respected lecturer who I liked. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I'll say. Um, yeah, and you know I ignored her and I did it anyway. <laughs> and I found that you know that's actually. Uh, the strength in my practice is is speaking from that personal voice because that's when I can say the most powerful things because I have conviction in it, you know. If you're going to ask me to talk about, I don't know, Philippine history or politics, I, have, I don't have the same, which I have tried, um, I don't have the same confidence in that rather than, than I have in talking about my experience growing up as a second-generation migrant in Western Sydney, and now as a mother raising bicultural children in Western Sydney. Like, that's where I I know and I'm confident that I can speak with conviction. Because, you know, your work is, uh, it has a real strong visual language. It's it's instantly recognisable. How did you find that language to just to express what you actually wanted to say? Um, I can actually pinpoint the exact moment. I went to see the Archibald during my last few years of uni and from across the room I could see a painting. It was a, a portrait of, of a white man but there was just something about it that just looked Filipino and I just thought mm. there's something, it looks philo. And so I read, I read the wall text and it was um, a, portrait, a self-portrait by David Griggs. It was called Zoloff Nation and the text revealed that he'd been living and working in the Philippines and so he was you know, and that, that explains that visual, those visual cues that just made me feel like, oh, this is Filipino because he was living and working there and he was inspired by the culture. So it's the, the portrait of, of Griggs is him standing on the railroad tracks where a lot of the squatters sort of live by and he's surrounded by children wearing Halloween masks. I don't know what it is. I mean, there's, it's just something about it just made me feel like this is a Filipino, there's a, some Filipino aesthetic here. I, yeah. Um, but when reading that wall text and reading that, you know, the artist was living and working in the Philippines and he was inspired by Philippine culture, it made me feel really guilty because I had been brought up with that culture, whereas he'd gone to live there and he was seeking that culture, whereas I've been raised in it and I've been, you know, surrounded by it my entire life and I've been rejecting it so much. And I just, yeah, just had this guilt that's like, oh, someone else can recognise the the um, value of Filipino culture. Why can't I? And to give a bit of context, I've I have always felt like I don't fit into either my Philippine or Australian, you know, cultural identities. I because I was born here, I've always felt like I'm Australian. But then I was raised by migrant parents, so they would continue to instill the traditions from their their culture. Whereas, but then I was growing up with people, like surrounded by people who didn't have that. So there was always that conflict of, you know, where do I fit in? And I think a lot of that discomfort came from 
feeling the need to choose one. And at the time, as a child, I chose being Australian, you know, because I just wanted to fit in with, with my friends. I didn't want to have, you know, a weird-sounding name like Marikit Santiago that nobody could pronounce or spell. I didn't want to have dark skin. I wanted to look like mm-hmm. my classmates with fair skin, blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, but, you know, the reality is, is that my name is Marikit Santiago and I have brown skin and, um, you know, that's, I had to, you can't, you can't ignore that. But I felt like you had to be proud of whichever one you chose and mm. it didn't at the time feel like it was acceptable to feel all the things at once. So I was really resistant towards my Filipino heritage. But then when like there are events like Manny Pacquiao's big fight against Floyd Mayweather, suddenly I'm like putting on the flag, <laughs> draping around my shoulders and I was like, what is happening to me? Um, and you didn't think here's a, an artist, a, a white bloke who's sort of using this part of my culture to, to represent himself. You didn't have those kind of feelings about that. I have those thoughts now. Yeah. But at the time, I think um, it, like seeing that painting of Griggs made me question myself more than it made me question him. So like later on, and, and now that I've, you know, continued this investigation and this, you know, negotiation with, my, um, with myself, I've been able to cast a more critical eye on, on Griggs. Um, but at the time, I looked at that and it made me question myself. You painted a gorgeous painting um, called The Divine, which won the, the Sulman Prize in 2020, and I wanted to ask you about it. I mean, there's, it's a genre art prize, right? And there's, there's, in this work, there's, there's snakes. It has beautiful babies and it's just got this kind of wild energy. <laughs> what was the, the genre that you were painting in? What was those references to like original sin? And it's just full of so much symbolism. And That's the first work that I had made after maternity leave, after having my third child and sort of completing our family. Um, and motherhood has really made me consider, you know, these creation stories and in the biblical creation story and the, you know, the, the Catholic principle of original sin, that we're all born with the sin of Adam and Eve and only, or Adam's, Adam's sin, and only through baptism can we be absolved of it. It makes me consider, like, you know, what is inherited by my children? You know, will they inherit my skin tone? Will they inherit my artistic talent? Will, will they inherit my sins? So that, that work is both a celebration of motherhood but also also considers you know what what hardships am i passing on to my children and that that's why the snakes are there but the snake so in in other imagery and other catholic imagery the snake is used as a symbol of the devil and so the virgin mary is often portrayed with her foot on the head of a snake to to symbolize her victory over evil but in my work my children are sort of uh, well, two of the children are sitting on top of snakes, and one of the one of the kids has a snake. Or my my youngest has a snake, sort of coiled behind her foot. So I'm kind of toying with that idea of have they defeated evil, or have I passed evil onto them, or am I teaching them to tame it? And it's sort of to say that life isn't as simple as black and white. I mean, I'm interested now in in how you how you do juggle it because you embarked on a a career. I mean, you were like really firm on that ambition, an art career, and you came out of art school with like three tiny children. <laughs> how, did you, how did you establish your art practice? Where do you work from? 
I, I work I work from my um my garage. So I've set up my studio in the garage of our two bedroom apartment. So our garage is actually along a shared driveway. <laughs> so to let in ventilation and a bit of natural light, I open all the doors. So I open like the big counterweight door and also the the back door. But Lately, I've found that it's just invited too many looky-loos and I get too many dist- uh, too many distractions of like, you know, Uber, Uber delivery guys going, oh, where's unit, whatever. So I've, and I've closed that door and I've just sacrificed the natural light and that extra bit of ventilation. But when I work in my studio, I have very limited time because, you know, the school hours are very short. And when I enter the studio, I have to work hard. You know, I have to work rigorously. I'm on the clock. I have a limited three hours, three to four hours, and that depends on whether I need to, you know, cook dinner beforehand because once the kids come home from school, it's all over. I just had a thought working from a a little tiny garage by the sounds of it. I I, I meant to mention this before, but you actually paint on cardboard. Is that that got something to do with working from a, a small space or...? Um, it, a few reasons I work on a cardboard, but yet to answer your question, yes, like working on cardboard allows me to make these bigger, more ambitious works that, you know, I, that I really want to make because I can fold up the cardboard and so I can work on it a uh, little bits at a time. But the cardboard is also symbolic of a, a tradition called the Balikbayan box. So migrants from around the world will pack a box of aid or like gro- my, my mum still does it. it. She'll send like groceries or she'll send like my old clothes, my sister's old clothes and toys. She'll send them all back to family in the Philippines. And this is a practice that has continued for decades. Like I, my mum's been doing this my whole life and she still is. Um, so I think it's they're... Cool. they're that name again? Balik Bayan, the Balik Bayan box. Balik, Balik Bayan is a Tagalog word. Balik means return and Bayan means home. So it's sort of like a homecoming or return to home um, box of aid. Um, and I think so. For when, when Filipinos uh, migrate, you know, often they migrate to Western countries, there's sort of this shift of power and it's expected that the migrant continues to send aid back home to the Philippines. And so the Balik Bayan box is one of those one of those ways. Marikit, thank you so much for speaking with me and happy International Women's Day. Yes, happy International Women's Day. Thank you. The wonderful Marikit Santiago. That's it for this week's art show. You can email us at theartshow at abc.net.au. This week's episode was produced by myself and Barbara Hagen. Thanks to RN Sound Engineers. And don't forget to follow us on the ABC Listen app. I'm Rosa Allen. I'll catch you next time here on The Art Show. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.